Welcome to Behind the Headlines. I'm Joe Shaw, executive editor of the Express News Group. With me is my co-host, Bill Sutton, who's managing editor of the Express News Group. Hi, Bill. Good morning. And uh, we have a panel of three of my good friends and colleagues on the East End, uh, very respected journalists. Uh, Denise Civiletti, who is the uh, founder and editor of Riverhead Local. Hi, Denise. How you doing? Good to have you. Uh, Vera Denise, who is a staff writer at Newsday, and uh, she covers the East End. Hi, Vera. Hi, Joe. Good to have you. And uh, Beth Young, who is the editor and founder of the East End Beacon. Hi, Beth. Morning, Joe. How are you? Good. Good to have you all uh, on this morning. So, uh, so let's talk about Denise. What's uh, just real briefly before we dive into some topics in depth? Uh, what's going on up your way in Riverhead? Well, you know, everybody everywhere will talk about this in depth. Uh, is you know anxious to get the vaccine, um, and there's no sign of that coming. Um, we are uh, here in Riverhead dealing with, um, you know, issues of the town water district. Um, and uh, I'm working on a story right now about the water district and the water authority kind of going head to head on um, who's going to serve areas of the town that are not presently served by the water district. Um, and there's uh, some interesting, interesting things brewing there. Um, and, you know, the COVID stuff all the time. I mean, you know, it's uh, seems like there's something else coming up every day. You know, we have these uh, some cases of this UK variant and uh, it's kind of scary. Nobody really seems to know exactly what that means there. You know, they think this, they think that we're, you know, we, they think the vaccine will still work with it. They think it's not more lethal, et cetera, et cetera. So there's, there's lots of unknowns and uh, we're kind of, I don't know about you, but I kind of feel like, okay, we're waiting for the other shoe to drop now, you know, like what's going to yeah. happen. Is it going to be the second wave and how bad is it going to be? So COVID now is sort of all alone at the top of the list now, as yeah. far as yeah. what's on our mind in the news, I think no question. Yeah. Beth, how about you? What's going, what's going on this week? Yeah, I, I think uh, one of the things I'm working on right now doesn't seem up front to relate to COVID, but uh, the Maureen's Haven homeless shelter network has uh, cut back a lot of its, um, a lot of its sites this year because a lot of the volunteers, because it was run by volunteers, are uh, nervous about coming out and working in COVID. So um, mm. St. Agnes in Greenport uh, is taking up a lot of the slack with that. Um, so we talked a little bit with uh, with Maureen's Haven. On the North Fork, um, there was this uh, opera house that sprung up in Southholds just a, uh, a couple of years ago. And um, it was really interesting. We, we talked to some of the kids who were learning how to uh, how to become opera singers when they first opened a couple of years ago, but it's not survived the pandemic. Well, that's too uh, bad. that's a shame. But, yeah, um, that, that's terrible. That's, but uh, Maureen's Haven, it's been a relatively mild winter. But if you're one of the homeless people out there trying to survive in this, it's not mild at all. It's very, very uncomfortable, yeah. and cold, and dangerous. Absolutely, yeah. And you yeah. know, people are more housing secure than ever before because so many people are coming out here and. Uh, from the city and and you can get whatever price you want if you have a rental property to uh, rent out. Well, that's a great point too. Yeah, it's gone worse. Vera, how about you? What uh, what have, what'd you write about this week? Sure. Uh, well, two stories that um, on the <coughs> South Fork that have both been going on for a while uh, kind of took major steps forward. One is the golf course proposed um, in East Quag, a project once known as the Hills, now um, um, 
I'm actually, I can't, I'm drawing a blank on what it's called now. It's uh, called the Lewis, Lewis Road, Lewis Road uh, PRD. Yes. Okay. Planned, plan, planned residential development. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Um, it received uh, approval from the Pine Barrens Commission on Wednesday, uh, which is seen as a, a major hurdle to uh, the project's ultimate approval. Um, it's a very polarizing issue down in East Quag. Um, and then also last night, the East Hampton Town Board approved the easement um, to bury the cable that will connect the um, South Fork Wind Farm to a, um, a LIPA substation uh, in East Hampton. And we'll come back and talk about that yeah. in some yeah. depth. I think that's a story that deserves Absolutely. a little more attention. Bill, we've been talking about parking this week in the paper. Yeah, all parking all the time. Paid parking for the summer in um East Hampton Village and Stag Harbor Village, they both have uh, proposals to put parking in place from Memorial Day, Labor Day, and in one case, even in, into October, um, to try to help alleviate some of the traffic concerns there. They're going to use a paid parking app on cell phones if you have a smartphone, um, which is one of the contentions. Some people don't have smartphones and, and wouldn't be able to access it. Um, we're kind of curious to see how those how those move forward. It seems... There's a lot of support, but there's a little bit of concern too. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting ongoing conversation, uh, but it sounds like it's going to happen uh, as of Memorial Day in Sag Harbor and East Hampton. It could be the dawn of a new era. Uh, you could could be looking at paying for parking through an app uh, in a lot of villages uh, on the South Fork eventually. So let's let's go back to uh, the vaccine situation, which again, I think is at the top of everybody's, uh, list this week. And, uh, this past week, uh, some local officials sent a letter to state officials to complain about the way the vaccine rollout has taken place on the East end. We haven't been getting the doses, uh, that, that we've seen other regions getting, one of the questions has been whether or not the infrastructure is really set up here to distribute the doses when they come. Doesn't really matter because we don't have the doses yet. Denise, what what's your take on all this? Where 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 what do you think the the biggest problem has been as far as as what you've seen in the rollout locally? Um, I think the the biggest problem locally is a, a trickle down effect of problems like right up the chain to Washington D.C. Although that's south of here. It's funny to say up the chain, but, um, you know, learning as we did yesterday that there was essentially no vaccine distribution plan in place on the federal level. Um, the On the state level, uh, the governor keeps saying we're getting 300,000 doses a week. Um, this week, we were only going to get 250. I don't think he ever really explained why that was or if he knew. I don't know. But, um, you know, there just there's not a lot of vaccines. And. You know, they distribute it according to population, according to region. And from there, it's cut up according to, you know, who the recipients are. And when it comes right down to it, um, you know, there's not a lot of vaccine doses, doses to go around. Um, in fact, last night or yesterday, maybe not last night, I maybe didn't see it till last night. But late in the afternoon, the governor put out a press release yesterday saying that the vaccine supply, New York's vaccine supply is 93 percent of the first doses have been used, 91% of the first and second doses altogether, and we're gonna run out of vaccines by the end of today, I think he said. Um, so, uh, you know, it, all the infrastructure or people waiting to administer them, uh, you know, notwithstanding, if they don't have the doses, there's nothing that, that can be done, I guess. Um, I mean, hopefully the 
invocation of the Defense Production Act or whatever. I don't. I haven't heard of a very good um, under. I haven't heard a very good explanation of what's going on with the production of the vaccine. I don't know if any of you have, but I haven't really. Um, uh, you know, it, that kind of baffles me. Like I don't understand. We're supposed to have 100 million doses by you know January or whatever, and for some reason, it seems like that hasn't materialized. And I'd like to personally, I'd like to know why. Um, the, yeah, and the I, county. I, 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 I was going to say, Denise, I, I think it's interesting, too, that the Biden administration uh, almost immediately looks like it's going to start to take more of a leadership role in trying to manage how these vaccines are getting out. I think I think the Trump administration's position was that they were leaving that up to the states and it really left uh, a lot of chaos at the national level. Um, it'll be interesting to see if it makes a difference. But um, Beth, I know the Beth, I, I know the governor uh, talked about trying to buy vaccines uh, on the open market uh, for New York State. Um, we had a conversation about that, that that may not be a great idea to have states competing to buy the virus, uh, the vaccine. That's, that's what we didn't want to do back when we were trying to buy N95s in the spring. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Drives the cost up and, and limits the supply. Yeah, uh, The county apparently has plans for um, a vaccine distribution site at some community college in Riverhead or Northampton. Um, and um, that I've been told by the county exec's office is ready to go as soon as they have vaccines to, to give out. Um, I understand that um, from the town supervisor last night that um, they, they are standing up a, uh, she called it a pod. I think that stands for point of distribution. I don't know. But um, that uh, they're doing that in Brentwood and um, East right. End law yeah. enforcement officers and first responders, et cetera, are, are going there today and tomorrow um, to get vaccinated. I don't know if it was the first I heard of that, but. Um, yeah, they've been doing uh -huh. healthcare workers for a while in Brentwood. And yeah. now, they're, now they're doing the first responders. And those are healthcare workers not in hospitals? Is that what that's They're doing in hospitals as well, yeah. Uh, Northwell and Stony Brook are doing just healthcare workers on the east Oh, yeah. They're getting but, I mean, so like, who, calls. It's like, What yeah. healthcare workers are going to the pod in Brentwood? Are they like, I, I had uh, a story about, uh, you know, like a doctor, a physician's group, a pediatric group that right. they didn't know where they could get. They were trying to get vaccinated because they're dealing with, you know, patients that are positive all the time. Um, I can tell you that. Go ahead. Uh, sorry, Beth. I was going to just say that I, I can tell you that hospital officials here will say privately that they have just been sort of overrun by the whole problem and, and, and trying to get the vaccine out to their healthcare workers and dealing with the state in getting, you know, it, it's been a 24 seven issue for the local hospitals just to get that out. Vera, is this something you've been working on? Have you, have you been keeping an eye on, on that story? So, um, Personally, not as much. I mean, we, you know, our, our health reporters have been on this every day for the beginning. Mm -hmm. But I, I just wanted to bring up. Um, so, you know, you said that it's expected that uh, Biden could use the Defense Production Act. But uh, so I, I, I saw the Times reported yesterday that um, Trump had actually invoked it to force suppliers to prioritize orders from Pfizer and Moderna. And uh, so it's not exactly clear. How, how much more that uh, invoking the Defense Production Act could even uh, quicken the pace? Um, well, the, it, the information distribution fixed. from the top has been just 
all right. the way down. They, it's just they like, can quicken there's no the information. information. It's all contradictory. They, they could do yeah. that. But as far as actual physical production, um, it seems like it, it's just going as fast as it possibly can. I and think manufacturers defense, just can't keep up. Is that, I mean, not, yeah. Don't have the capacity. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think the Defense Act might come into play more with testing equipment, because I think things like the uh, pipettes that are required right. for for doing the tests, that there was a shortage in those. Those are things you can probably get the Defense Act to, to ramp up production of. But I, with the vaccine, I'm with you guys. I'm in a little bit of the dark uh, as far as how that's proceeding. But I would guess that that's not something that that. Uh, I think probably the 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 economy of this is driving that right now. The the companies are it's in their best interest to produce as much vaccine as they possibly can as quickly as they can. So we're probably seeing that. Sure, I think you think, when you think about the Defense Act, you think about you know <clears throat> when they were working with with ventilators and, and stuff in, in the spring. You're you're converting different businesses to be able to do that to to produce the ventilator. Uh, you know, manufacturing firms that, that didn't produce them before. I don't know how you do that with a vaccine. With, you that know, doesn't with a, work. With, with a formula that's proprietary and, and all that. You can't, you know, you can't tell Kodak and Rochester, okay, you're going to produce the vaccine. It just, it just doesn't happen. That way. Mm -hmm. Denise, I think you, you mentioned the, the variants in the virus, yeah. which, which, is, which is scary because uh, it becomes a moving target a little bit. I heard a really interesting bit of information from a health expert who was talking the other day and said that, you know, the, the virus can mutate to become more deadly. It can mutate to become more, more contagious. It's actually, it results in more deaths if it mutates to become more contagious. Right. Um, it, that's a more dangerous thing to happen than have it become more deadly. I found that counterintuitive, yeah. but really fascinating. Mm -hmm. Well, it, oh, it, more, it over, more people overloads. gets it. Yeah, uh, uh, Tony Fauci said that last night. Yeah. 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 Bill, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, my dog was barking. Um, <laughs> they, they like to be on the radio too. I, I was just, I would, um, I, I lost my thought. I was, I was just gonna, gonna say that. Um, yeah, I completely lost my thought. You started to say it overloads. I think you were going to say it overloads the hospitals. No, right? exactly. I mean, yeah, that, yeah, yeah, that yeah. was my point. That it may yeah. be less deadly or not more deadly, but if it's more contagious, then you have more people in the hospitals and medical yeah. facilities, and you know that's the big, uh, you know, the big thing we're trying to avoid is is overloading those hospitals. Yeah. Has it has it driven all of you just insane like it has me? That um, well, maybe I was already on the edge, but like. The, the, Chaos in the dis in the dissemination of inf information yeah. from the people who are you know supposedly informing. I mean, they have these press briefings and things like that. And, you know, yes, I'm speaking of the governor, and yes, the county executive. It's like, you know, they don't really want to answer questions when you ask them direct questions. They dance all around, and it's like you just get partial information and then the information that they give you changes from week to week in terms of what they tell you or how they tell you and it's just it's maddening it just has how, made how much, me it's made much, me nuts how much of that do you think filters down from from the national level and and i was you know i watched um i watched biden's first uh you know press event the other night and i forget her name it, it slips my mind but um the press briefing and i was just really encouraged 
um, that, that there was actually somebody there coherently answering questions <laughs> or trying to answer questions and, and seemingly being um, upfront and, and truthful about answering questions. And, I, you know, my hope is that that some of that information that maybe wasn't filtering down to local officials and local lawmakers and state lawmakers, that maybe that's going to make a difference. Maybe that's Pollyannish, but it was, well, uh, it was yeah. a hopeful moment. I, I, I really appreciate it when, can you guys hear me? Yep. Yes. Uh, I, I really appreciate it when, um, when if they don't know the answer, they tell you they don't know. Because yeah. if, if people start speculating, then you, you take it down and, and that shouldn't be happening in a press briefing. This is uh, Behind the Headlines. Uh, I'm Joe Shaw with my co-host, Bill Sutton. Uh, with us is Beth Young of the East End Beacon, uh, Denise Civiletti of Riverhead Local, and Vera Chinise of Newsday. Um, you know, it's called Behind the Headlines, so I'll be candid. Uh, I don't know if the three of you have tried to deal with the governor's office as far as mm -hmm. getting information. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, so we're all in agreement. Um, I think the biggest problem that we've seen locally has been that there's a chain of command where information flows from and it goes all the way to the governor's office. And at every step down from the governor's office, there's a terror of stepping on toes for one level up. And so nobody wants to talk candidly about what the situation is uh, because the governor's office can come down so hard on, you know, for, for us with, with Stony Brook Southampton Hospital, the, the chain goes from them to Stony Brook, Stony Brook to SUNY, SUNY to the governor's office. And at every step along the way, there's pressure uh, being applied downward. And I think that's been a big part of the problem. And, it, and, and I also think there's just not a lot of information to give right now. It's, it's just a question of, I think it's a simple matter of getting more vaccines. We just aren't getting enough vaccines to distribute. I think, though, that that's very characteristic of this particular governor, honestly. I mean, I, you know, he has a, a very steely grip on the flow of information in any state agency. I mean, yeah, just dealing with the DEC, for example, trying to get information out of them. And I mean, you know, I was doing this as you were, too, before Cuomo was governor. You know, when he was attorney general, he was really big on transparency. And after he became the executive of the state, he had completely changed his tune. And it was not, has not been a very transparent uh, uh, executive official. And I think that while, yes, there's, there's been um, inconsistent information, et cetera, and the whole, like, as you pointed out, Bill, the demeanor of, of the, the press office in Washington and the, in the uh, White House, um, I, I see what, what I'm complaining of is what I believe the state house, the state, the governor has complete control over information. He has complete control over. I mean, like why, for example, don't we get information about um, tests administered and percent positives on the town level? Right. What's the reason for that? There's no reason for that. Why, when you have hotspots, do you only get the percent Positive. You don't know how many tests were given and, you know, how many positives there were. You just get the percentage, which is, is kind of like um, uh, almost an irrelevancy, the, that percentage. You know, if you don't know 
how many tests are given and, and what the population of that area is. You know, it's like yellow magic marker on a map in terms of where the, you know, what the, the Riverhead microcluster zone is. You know, you have to like really try to figure out where it is. I mean, I think we live just outside of it. <laughs> it goes around and like, you know, and it's, there's no specificity. And I feel like that is that works to the a benefit of someone that really wants to control the information, the flow of information, as That's I it. believe that he does. And part of the problem is, Denise, we can't just pick up the phone and call the governor's office for clarification because the PR department doesn't. Vera, do you have any luck as Newsday? Because I have this feeling that when Denise, Beth and I call up and say we're from where we're from, that's one thing. But maybe Vera Chinese of Newsday can get through to somebody at the governor's yeah. office. Are you ever um, had any luck? So, well, you know, I'm going to talk in very general terms here um, as somebody who's worked for the smaller, you know, the local papers and at Newsday. Um, and generally speaking, yeah, the uh, press offices are a little bit more responsive when, you know, you call and you say you're from Newsday. But then again, there I have colleagues of mine at Newsday who they'll be even quicker to get back to than me. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so it's frustrating. I, I, I feel it too. Yeah. It's frustrating yeah. when, when, you know, you're in the position that Denise is talking about where we'd like more information and we can't get it. Uh, it and our, our readers are asking for more and we just can't give it to them. Yeah. Vera, before we move on, um, I, I feel like we have to touch on the fact that this is a topic that's of significance to yes, you. because very personal. Yeah. Uh, of all of us, I, probably all of us on the panel have been touched in some way by the virus, but you're recovering from COVID-19 as yeah. your entire family is, right? Yes, exactly. Um, so I guess it's about a month now since, uh, you know, we were exposed. Um, my two children who are seven years old and four years old and my husband were all positive. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll be honest, my mother and my sister came over on Christmas Eve. Um, we've been sort of bubbling with them this whole time and we thought, you know, it'd be okay. My mother had a test on Tuesday. My husband had a test on Tuesday. Christmas Eve was Thursday and we all, you know, we're all were positive. So mm, how'd everybody, how'd everybody, everybody get through it? Yeah. Um, yeah, everybody was, is okay. Nobody had to go to the hospital or anything. That's so the kid, yeah, the, the, the kids are seven and four. They had no symptoms really just they, nothing Good. at all. But uh, a couple weeks out, they're getting very tired at school. Um, they're telling their teachers, you know, I'm tired. I want to take a nap. And, and that's really, you know, tough and difficult. Um, so I'm still dealing with a lot of fatigue, um, feeling like I had to take a nap just in the middle of the day, just, just like falling asleep. Uh, I can't go for a run. Um, I put down an area rug the other day and I was completely winded for like an hour. So, you know, there's all these sort of just weird symptoms that I'm still dealing with. You know, I thought I'm a relatively young person. I thought it would be I thought it would be pretty easy. I thought I'd get through it. But, um, you know, I've been dealing with this for a month now. And Take care of yourself. We, yeah, we, yeah. we need we need you back on the job. Yeah. 100 yeah. percent healthy and uh, and in full strength. No question. Yeah. So so let's talk quickly. You, you mentioned earlier uh, East Hampton took some action uh, regarding the wind farm proposal. Can yeah. you give us an update on where that stands now? 
Um, well, I mean, this project still needs various approvals from, uh, you know, the state and federal government. So this is, you know, in no way a done deal, but it does kind of, um, you know, East Hampton is throwing their weight behind this, behind this route. Um, um, this is the route for the distribution line that comes from the, right. the wind farm. And this is going to go under Beach Lane in Wayne Scott. Um, it's likely going to prompt some litigation um, from, uh, you know, the group of Wayne Scott residents have been uh, vehemently opposed to this. Um, so, and we're, we're, you know, obviously, I think we're still two or three years out before um, this project could, you know, really move forward this this is really the first step in uh what could be a lot of uh similar uh Absolutely. stories like this right yeah i mean there, there are some proposals uh beth there's a, there's a proposal uh beth and denise you guys there's there's one for up around riverhead as well at least some conversation about one correct um, Wind farm? Yeah, his, no, uh, she, uh, Denise was talking about uh, solar farms. On oh, every, solar farms. I'm sorry. Yes, yes. yes. I, I, a farmer put up a windmill. <laughs> it didn't it's work. Actually, uh, ironically, in a farm called Windy Acres in Calverton, oh, no. that was the name of the farm. And <laughs> Governor Pataki came down and you know, there was a whole big thing. And um, a few couple of years later, they just kind of like dismantled it and packed it off. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I was talking about um, the, we, we've got this issue locally with, in Calverton also um, in an area near uh, a substation that feeds the South Fork, um, which is on Edwards Avenue in Calverton. Um, there, there's a lot of uh, farmland that's actually zoned industrial because the town has like way too much industrial zoning. Um, and they, it, it, it's being covered with uh, solar panels. Like, you know, these big solar companies are buying or leasing the land and um, they're erecting these so-called solar farms. And so we have like hundreds of acres that are, you know, being developed as solar farms and, um, you know, the, the resident, while, you know, I mean, there's two, well, there's more than two trains of thought on this, but like some people are like, you know, these are just really unsightly and ugly. And why are we being saddled? You know, we like solar. Yeah, we like solar energy, but what, how are we benefiting from this? You know, um, the energy is being produced and it's being shipped out of town and we're stuck with these solar farms that are unsightly and are they really going to what happens when they get decommissioned we have these de decommissioning agreements but that's going to be 30 years down the road are they going to be able to remove these panels and recycle them there's like that whole thing and then um you know a lot of other people are like well this 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 beats you know industrial development there you could have you know like you know cement factories or something i don't know um, that one of the councilmen said the other day and um and then still other people are like, yeah, but these don't produce jobs, these solar farms, you know, like they're, they're not producing jobs for, for people. They may produce taxes, but, you know, isn't industrial land supposed to produce jobs? So there's like a lot of, um, for every subject, there's at least 10 arguments in Riverhead, you know? That's, so that's fair. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot, a lot of those arguments going on, but there really are. I mean, it's literally hundreds of acres and, and now, you know, I mean, if they're of a certain size, 
they they get removed from the town's jurisdiction. They there was always a way that um, if it was over, I think twenty. 25 or 29 mega, uh, megawatts. No, that's not right. Kilowatts. Um, <laughs> it got taken over, got taken over by the state under Article 10, the, the Public Service Department. And that, I mean, the idea behind that, I think, was to get it out, out from under the, you know, not in my backyard kind of uh, reaction that everybody tends to have to these things. And then that proved too cumbersome. So they, uh, there's a new section of law that it's supposed to be an even quicker review. So that freaked a lot of people out here as well. So that's, uh, I think that's Beth, what unites the, the, the two uh, alternate energies, solar and wind, they do require a lot of infrastructure. Um, mm -hmm. And that's where they're starting to run into some opposition. I think most everybody uh, says they're in favor of alternative energies, but it's the nuts and bolts of just where do you put, put it, the... Yeah, just yeah. don't put it in my backyard. Yeah, well, yeah. These, the, the latest uh, farm to be approved off of um, Montauk, the, the cable's going all the way to Astoria. It's going 200 miles under the sound. So that's... Yeah, I mean, there, there's there's yeah. a there's a real impact of, of these projects as well. And, and uh, I think in East Hampton... It's Vera, the, the, the East Hampton town board and the town trustees there have been pushing forward, despite the fact that even the town board's a little divided over this. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there's 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 a fair amount of of upset in Wayne Scott, who uh, the Wayne well, Scott folks. Yeah, there's a group that they want to incorporate. Uh, they want to break away from the town and incorporate as a village because uh, they're so upset with this decision. And you have to wonder if if the town board's signing of, of the um, the, the agreement yesterday is is in part was done now um, pre preceding that in, that incorporation or you know because there's going to have to be a hearing coming up fairly soon on that incorporation and February fifth February fifth yeah. so you have to wonder if they wanted just to get that done now before before that hearing interesting yeah. I I think that the folks who are planning uh, Orsted the the folks who are planning the the wind farm may have thought that they sort of resolved the issue by putting the, the wind farm itself over the horizon from Montauk. And, mm -hmm. and so it would be sort of out of sight, out of mind. But very clearly, uh, the cable coming ashore is is just as big an issue yeah, uh, I just, for folks. Okay. Um, th this thing that happens, and in, in, you see this in East Hampton, Southampton town that you may not see in other towns on Long Island, um, is the this ability to organize and um, the amount of money that they have, they've hired um, two law firms to consult on in, in incorporating a consulting firm and a PR firm right. to, you know, <laughs> to get the word out about this effort to incorporate. Um, you don't you don't see that in other towns, you know, so maybe they weren't anticipating that kind of um, opposition to the project. Nevertheless, the, the town officials and certainly the governor uh, really want to move forward yes, with absolutely. this project, right? Absolutely. So if we look ahead 10 years, um, do we think there's going to be a, a, a strong presence of alternate energy on the East End? Will we see more solar? Farm? I know I lost a golf course uh, to a solar farm uh, up around Shirley. One of my favorite golf courses was converted into a, a solar farm a couple of years ago. We're, are we going to see a proliferation 
of of this kind of technology on the east end well that's the goal you know both uh southampton and east hampton towns have goals of um providing their energy through alternative sources um you know by certain dates um just whether or not that they can achieve it and and i think some of the the idea too is beth i know that there's technologies for individual homes to, to try and add solar panels. And certainly the towns have tried to encourage that. I'm not sure. I actually, I'm, I'm not sure how successful that's been um, as far as, as um, property owners, homeowners coming on board to do that. Uh, but it's, a, it's an expensive undertaking, although it ends up paying, paying for itself over time, I guess. Well, I think uh, one of the big problems with rooftop solar is uh, a lot of people's houses aren't oriented or have too many large trees to really make it a viable option, um, especially when you're sinking that, those kinds of costs into it. Um, I know those CCA agreements for the, the, the South Fork towns are working on those, the North Fork towns aren't, um, are just trying to buy power for the grid from renewable sources. Um, and that's kind of a way around people not being able to put it on the rooftops, but then you deal with all kinds of transmission issues because the power is coming from mostly off of Long Island and you lose a lot in transmission. So it's very complicated. I think it's really interesting, Denise, too, that, that you, you mentioned all of the different angles that opponents have uh, for challenging the, the solar farms up your way, that, that it's, there's a variety of reasons. It's not just... I'm against solar power. It's 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 there's a lot of complicated issues tied to the idea of using industrial land for solar farms. Yeah, and I, you know, even one that I hadn't thought of before, that I hadn't remembered before, but you know, people have raised the objection, like, will this technology? What Beth just said reminded me of this. Will this technology be outdated and outmoded and obsolete? In you know, it's got this thirty-year. They're giving these people thirty-year lifetime, you know, agreements. Are they? Well, what are they even going to be? Uh, valid technologies for that period of time. I mean, I, from what I understand, one of the problems with uh, rooftop solars, in addition to what you what you mentioned, Beth, is um, like you're you're basically generating electricity to put back into the grid, right? Um, there, there's no like easy way to have uh, on-site storage capacity, so you can't produce solar readily for your own use. It has to go right. I mean, you 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 can, but that gets. Storage. That gets complicated as well. Yeah, uh, like island so. mode and microgrids are things that are going to be more prevalent yeah. in the future. But, but there, you have to have the money to put that kind of thing in. And absolutely. So, I don't, I, you know, it's it's complicated. But I mean, you know, yeah. I think it's obviously something that we all need to come to terms with because we need to build some kind of sustainable power grid, some kind of sustainable future. And that's not reliant on, you know, drilling off the continental shelf, which, you know, is something that I hope gets reversed pretty quickly. Um, but, you know, we, we have to come to terms with that. And there's always this like, well, this is good and everything, but can you do it somewhere else? Yeah. You know, I've, um, I've always found it intriguing. This is a region that that loves its windmills. Uh, it's it's historic <laughs> windmills. Don't work. But yeah, but that don't actually do anything any longer. So this is an area. So this is Behind the Headlines. I'm Joe Shaw of the Express News Group with my co-host Bill Sutton from the Express News Group. Uh, with us, uh, Beth Young of the East End Beacon, 
Denise Civiletti of Riverhead Local and Vera Chinise of Newsday. So let's change topics again and talk a little bit about um, the different conversations that are now taking place for uh, regarding police reform. The towns are all tackling this. The villages who have police forces on the east end are tackling this. That, by the way, is an unusual thing in Suffolk County. Uh, communities to the west don't have village police forces, mm -hmm. but on the east end, of course, we do. And so each of the villages and towns is is required by the state to undertake this process of having a conversation about police reform. And those conversations have gotten underway, right? Denise, they've started up in Riverhead just like they've started on the South Fork, correct? They have. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, the town just had, uh, they did a survey um, and they got, they said like 1,200 responses. Um, wow. They held um, two so-called listening sessions um, that were not very well attended at all. And I was wondering what the experience was like in the other towns on the South Fork, because the, like Southampton seemed to be way out in front on this. Like, you know, they got, they jumped on this much more quickly than Riverhead did. And um, they seemed to have it more together. Um, and I was just wondering if that translated into more participation on, in the listening sessions that they've held. I mean, they have one, I think last week as well, or this week. Southampton, Southampton Town had a listening session yesterday, I believe, last night. And from what I hear from from uh, the reporter, there were there were two people that that attended. Yeah. And think, you know, in Southampton Village, Kitty Merrill, one of our reporters, wrote you know a story on Southampton Village had had a I don't know if it was a listening session or they had a, they had a public meeting last week um, and and you know had the stakeholders. They had <clears throat> you have to wonder a, a little bit about the process and, and, you know, and how the, how the governor set this up. And there were some concerns <clears throat> in that meeting from, you know, people that are, that are on the group on the, on the committee, they had sent out a survey as well and, and got back responses that were, were mostly, mostly positive, but the concerns were you're sending, you're sending this, you know, this survey out to, to people knowing, and these people know that the survey is going to come back to the police department. So there were worries that people may not have responded um, um, were they not, not, not truthfully, but in full uh, about their experiences with, you know, with with the department over the years. Um, and I, I think, you know, a couple of the of the people on the committee were, um, you know, Black Lives Matter organizers who who had said that, uh, you know, Willie Jenkins had, had said that, um, you know, he's had a lot of bad experiences with with that village police department of uh, being profiled and being pulled over, you know, for no reason and, and all that. And. Um, I, I guess their suggestion moving forward, and I think to keep it to a positive, is, is to send out another survey, perhaps, and have those survey responses go somewhere else other than the, to, to the police department. So there can be an honest look at people's experiences. I know one of the criticisms that came from the governor's uh, demand for these these organizations, uh, th these reviews to be set up in the wake of everything that happened over the summer was that it assumed that each of the police departments had problems that needed to be addressed. And they took that, a lot of the police chiefs took that kind of personally uh, and, and, and felt like they were going, they were walking into a buzzsaw a little bit. But this police reform process, if it's, 
if it's done properly, really is an opportunity um, for the community to step forward and, and begin to say specifically what they're looking for to address these problems. Vera, I, I don't know if you have a little bit more of a global view of this, of how it's happening in other communities on Long Island. Uh, is it being embraced by police organizations anywhere as, as a positive uh, thing? If it is, I have not heard of that. Uh, <laughs> I mean, from what... Um, I'm reading. It doesn't seem that the that the response on the South Fork is um, very different than what it's been elsewhere. Okay, because I know that that I've I've talked with Chief Skrinaki, and I think he's open to the process, but he certainly felt a little. Uh, I, I think he sure. felt he felt a little insulted by the suggestion that uh, the 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 default position going into the conversation is that your department has problems that need sure. to be fixed. Well, that, you know, that just speaks to what the national conversation is, you know, about this. Uh, you, that's why, you know, you see blue lives matter flags, you know, that's, and people say that, you know, because they feel that the police are, are under attack, you know, they take great offense of that. So just the phrase defund the police really derailed police. this entire yeah. conversation yeah. from the get-go. I think that's true. I think it was poor, poor choice of wording. Um, on the East End, we have to say, is it, well, now I'll, I'll ask you, Denise, actually, I'll ask you, is it fair to say that we don't have as much of a problem with police departments on the East End as some areas do? Clearly, there are issues. And we've, we spoke at length with Willie Jenkins, who I think had some real eye-opening uh, anecdotes about interactions with the police department as, as a person of color. But on the East End in general, the police departments haven't had an awful lot of bad experiences to report. Well, I mean, certainly, and I think that's been the complaint certainly that's been the complaint here officers that i've spoken to from you know police brass to you know rank and file officers they feel like the governor and the public in general the news media in particular has painted that everything with too broad a brush you know it's like uh, you know everything isn't the situation that occurred in minneapolis everything isn't the situation that has occurred in new york city where little towns, where small police departments, and I've heard that over and over again, we don't have those problems here. Um, on the other hand, um, speaking to residents in, uh, and p activists and just regular you know, residents in communities of color, um, they don't see it that way at all. I mean, for one thing, they see the bigger picture and you know the, what happened to any one of the many dozens of people who, uh, you know, unarmed black people who were killed by police officers, they they take that personally, even though it might have happened in New York City, in Staten Island, in Minneapolis or Maryland. It happened to us here because, you know, that that's a very personal thing. That's one thing. And then the second thing is that they they do report issues with the police that um, it, it almost seems like they're in parallel universes because, you know, the police aren't seeing these problems or these issues and the people who are being policed 
are seeing them. And, you know, they feel like they're treated differently because of the color of their skin. Um, they, you know, can't even like um, quantify really what um, the pe members of the Latino community feel because, you know, I don't think that they don't have somebody uh, consistently speaking out for them, at least not locally here. Um, but, you know, we have a very large Latino community in Riverhead. Um, do they feel like they've been um, policed differently? And I mean, I'll, I'll give the governor credit with the, the concept of, you know, bringing the police into um, community, you know, having open communication between the police and the people that they police and the, the minority communities or, you know, the people of color is a better way to put it, I guess, then um, and, and get them together to share their experiences. But I, I don't know about in other places, but I don't feel like that's how it really has panned out in Riverhead. Like, I don't feel like, you know, we don't really have much rank and file police representation on this committee. We don't have any more than we have, you know, kind of rank and file resident um, participation on, on the committee. Yeah. Won't um, work if people don't show up, that's for I, sure. And Bill, I, I'm sorry, go ahead, Beth. Yeah, I, I think there was a conscious decision at the beginning that I, I think they wanted it to be civilian run. And but then you're complaining about the police and they don't have a chance to respond. And if they had been there and been part of the conversation, it would have been a productive dialogue. And that never happened. And Bill, I think I think Denise makes a great point that we don't have high profile cases involving beatings or, or thank goodness, killings. Uh, I, I wonder how many communities, felt. how many communities said that, though, just before they had right. a high profile incident. I mean, and this is it, my point. There are there are a lot of under the radar from talking with folks in in the, the Latino and the, and the black communities. There are a lot of under the radar. We don't know what it's like. Uh, to be to be dealing with with police agencies on and, the and South Fork, and I think that was the intention of of, of this whole you know this mm -hmm. whole state thing was was to try to get to the bottom of that. I, I feel like I get the impression now though it's now it's turned into this you know bureaucratic. Okay, we've got to get this done by this date and get, do this by that date, and and it just turned into another. Let's check the boxes and say that we did it so that we can secure the funding or or, or whatever. I don't. I, and it, it may just be my opinion, but I, I don't feel like we're getting to any honest answers um, yeah, I mean, I think know, locally. Yvette Aguiar in Riverhead, I think the first thing she said is this is another unfunded mandate from the governor's office. That's there absolutely right. And if yeah. you spin it that way, there's no dialogue. Yeah, let's just get it done. Yeah. The dialogue has a certain benefit, but I think if we I, I'm not sure what the outcome is is expected to be or if the outcome is going to really do much to 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 try and address the issue in in, a, in any kind of significant way i mean if you start with the premise that there's no problem what is there to talk about yeah mm -hmm. you know i mean i, I, I mean, don't we heard that from a couple of different departments you know on on, on the south fork uh, we've been working on this for a long time and we're uh, way ahead of the curve and we really don't have much to do so so here you go there you know it's done and i think that's infuriating to people like willie jenkins who who say that the, that yeah there's been progress made 
but the problem is not solved by any stretch of the imagination. Right. And, and so those conversations are going to continue to take place. But I, I think I think that'll be the thing to watch is to see if there's actually anything concrete coming out of any of these conversations that are happening uh, with each of the each of the police departments. The most I think concrete that, thing. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I think one of the most concrete things you, we could see would be uh, hiring of more officers of color. But that's a, like it's, that's that's like a perennial problem. They've been talking yeah. about that for 25 years. And how, that's how exactly what I was going to say. About, yeah. Yeah. And I, and I also think the the point that the rank and file police officers aren't really at the table. I think how the messages get down to the rank and file is is a really important part of this. And I think training is an important part of this. I think that's a national issue uh, as far as training for police officers. Yeah. So we have a couple of minutes left uh, here on behind the headlines. Uh, so as we wrap up, uh, we like to take a look forward. Uh, for a week and look at next week's headlines. So uh, let's talk a little bit about stories we're looking at moving forward. Beth, uh, what what kind of what are the stories that you're keeping a close eye on for the coming week? Uh, I'm hoping next week will be quiet. But um, I know. <laughs> yeah, don't we all? Me too. Use a quiet week or two. How about a quiet Wednesday? We haven't had a quiet Wednesday in 2021. Yeah, uh, I know. Guildhall in East Hampton is launching this uh, gather discussion with uh, leaders. Uh, I think Jeremy Dennis is kicking it off from the Shinnecock Nation, uh, talking to leaders um, from uh, uh, communities of color uh, throughout Suffolk County. And that should be interesting. That uh, starts Monday night. I believe it's four Mondays through February. Jeremy's uh, an amazing artist, too. He is great. Yeah, no question. Yeah. Denise, what stories are you working on uh, for the what? coming week? I, I think the concept of what I'm going to be doing next week. What are you working um, on tomorrow? You know, yeah, exactly. Right now I'm thinking about, I got to finish that story. I got up and started writing at five this morning <laughs> that I wanted to get published before I started this. Um, so I, you know, uh, there's going to be there's going to be some more news on that on the water issue, the the uh, contamination of drinking water emanating from the Calverton, um, the Calverton site, the former Grumman site. I know, uh, you, you know, Vera, you, I know you've written about that and uh, other people on Newsday staff have done some you know really great reporting on it as well um, that, um, you know, there's there's now that they've got proof that. There's some heavy-duty contaminants in those wells. Um, you know, they've got some juice going into, uh, and people with juice now, and the majority leader being uh, the New York Senator, um, Chuck Schumer, um, they're hopeful that they're going to get federal funding to bring public water to um, the area that south of the Grumman site where there is this contamination. And uh, I'm, uh, my understanding is that uh, Congressman Zeldin is going to have a press conference on Monday, but nobody seems to know or they're not letting on exactly what he's going to say. Um, but he's called for federal funding. Schumer's called for federal funding. And hopefully um, we, we need the EPA it, on board with the standards for PFOS, right? Well, I mean, that's if uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that if they Schumer's can, office said that they'll the federal yeah. government will work it out if they have to adhere to the state standards or not. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the key thing is to, you know, get the money and and bring the water there, because um, 
regardless of if it's state standards. I mean, the EPA, then they shifted it to, it's got a, the, the DOD has their own uh, standards. Yeah. Like, yeah. Which some um, of those wells are above that anyway. So. Some are, yeah. So um, now, as you know, as pointed out in, um, and their names are escaping me, Vera, but the, the Newsday cover story where they talked about how Grumman knew about this from, you know, the 1980s, um, you know, uh, the Navy's been pretty cagey with, throughout this whole thing. So, um, but the bigger picture there is this kind of like battle coming to a head between the town of Riverhead pr being protective of its water district and its territory for the water district and the Suffolk County Water Authority. And that's getting quite uh, uh, heated up, I think. So, but I'm looking up, you know. Water yeah. issues are, are, are going to just be increasingly uh, yeah. crucial, I think, to all of our communities. Vera, are you uh, back up to speed? You're you're working um, from home, I, I assume. Yeah, no, I've been working from home since March. Um, yes, I, I feel I feel like I'm finally getting up to speed. Um, so I'll be watching this uh, Wayne Scott Incorporation effort. There's a, a public hearing on February 5th, which is the following week, but very interested in that. Um, it's not often that new villages are created. More often you see them uh, dissolving. Mm -hmm. um, the last village on Long Island to be created was Mastic Beach, and that was... Um, a nightmare. A, a nightmare. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so it'd be really interesting to see how that develops. Um, on uh, Although know, Sagaponic's been pretty successful. Sagaponic, <laughs> right. But that's its own, you know. It helps very unique. to be Sagaponic. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't have a commercial district, you know, and the, the homes are, you know, it's always in the most expensive zip code in the America. And East Quag attempted to incorporate East Quag attempted, recently yeah, and, it, and it, failed. It, it failed. So. Um, so it's very interesting. So, you know, I just want to note that uh, personally, so not this week, but the following week, my son, who's a first grader, is going to be returning to school four days a week. He's been two days a week since um, September. And obviously he didn't go to school for, from March until June. Um, and uh, quite honestly, that that's been it's been terrible, you know. So I think that this is something to watch the uh, effect of remote learning on on the kids uh there's this call from uh, uh you know this umbrella teacher group to cancel state testing this year for grades three to eight and um some people are saying well you know what let's test the kids and see um <laughs> you know the real effects of of this and you know the teachers groups are saying well that's not fair to the kids so i don't know that's big everybody's watching that no yeah. question yep. so yep. All right, guys, we're out of time. Uh, this has been Behind the Headlines. I want to thank Beth Young of the East End Beacon, Denise Civiletti of Riverhead Local, and Vera Chinise of Newsday for joining us this week. Bill Sutton, my co-host, thank you. Uh, we will be back uh, next week. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, guys. It's been fun. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.